Let's open our Bibles again to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, the third letter to the churches in Revelation, chapter 2, 12 through 17. hard-hitting letters in the best sense of the word. Let's pray together. We ask now, Heavenly Father, that you would be pleased to open our hearts, that we would, as your children, be teachable, that each of us, each of us, would look within his heart and say, Father, where do I need to believe and repent? Where do I need to change so that I may be the husband or the wife or the child or the servant that you have called me to be, and so that I may be the child of God that you have called me to be. May each of us ask those sorts of questions as we study the text together, and we pray that the Holy Spirit, who has inspired this word, this word that is without error in the whole and in the part, will now bless the proclamation of it to the upbuilding of your saints that we may live faithfully in this fallen world, and to the lost who may be among us who need the Savior. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of the word, Revelation 2, beginning with verse 12. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. To the Christian church, a smiling world is more dangerous than a frowning one. To the Christian church and to the Christian, a smiling world is more dangerous than a frowning one. And we Christians may not be friends with this present evil age from which we have been delivered. We are involved in this world. We love God's people and we love the lost. We are to be involved thoroughly as Christians in the world in which we live. But even though we are in this world, we are not of this world. Some in the church at Pergamum are willing to attempt the impossible to remain Christian while simultaneously making common cause with the world. I'm talking about worldview, 
the view of the world that is anti-Christian, making common cause with the world. So our Lord Jesus Christ sees this to be so important that he addresses this theme here in this third letter to the churches in Revelation. And we see it, first of all, as we note the address, the address, Pergamum. That's where the letter would be delivered, the church in Pergamum, 50 miles north of Smyrna. Ramsey, the archaeologist, has a magnificent description in one of his great books on Pergamum. Having seen the other cities of the former Roman province, this is the only one that, that when he saw it, there came from his lips a royal city. The entire city was built on a huge acropolis, and it was a magnificent site. Culture in Pergamum, the city was known as an illustrious city. It was very cosmopolitan. Pergamum was known as the official capital of the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus is gaining primacy because of the temple to Diana at this time and because of the trade advantages of its uh, geography. But Pergamum is still a very prominent place. It has an enormous library at this stage in history. The priests of Esculapius, the god of healing, with its serpentine symbol, made their home there. It was the famous birthplace of Galen, the physician. There is what we would call today a a medical college that was well known in the ancient world here at Pergamum. And it was well known not only for the worship of Esculapius, but also the temples of Zeus, Athena, Apollo, and it is the seat of emperor worship in the Roman province of Asia. And that's important to note. The emperor cult found its seat here. And all of the struggles and temptations that come with living as a Christian in a pluralist society would be known here and known very intensely. So we're moving along in the text. The second thing we see is Christ's self-designation. Notice how he addresses this church and how he designates himself in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that has already come up in this book in verse 16 of chapter 1 when we have this magnificent description of the ascended Christ. We read in chapter 116, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So he addresses Pergamum, and once again, there is the symbol of the sharp two-edged sword, which, of course, is the symbol of God's word. We find it throughout Scripture. Isaiah 49.2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the book of Hebrews, this well-known verse, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so it is God's word that cuts and never misses, pierces the conscience, wounds the prideful heart, opens our hearts to God's searching eye, defends against our enemies, destroys those who will oppose the kingdom of God. And there is need for sharp, accurate, penetrating judgments as they live in the midst of this place called Pergamum. And so this sharp two-edged sword is ultimately a symbol of Christ's absolute authority over the world and absolute authority in the church of his purchase through his own blood. 
It is addressed to a church located in the seat of Roman authority in the Roman province of Asia. And now Christ says, I am the one who holds this authority. Here is the symbol of my authority, my own word. Caesar is not Lord. I am Lord. I am the one who rules. I am the one who is authoritative in this church and over all of life. And that is still the same. The church has no right to come up with its own agenda. Christ alone is head and king of his church, and to his authority we are called to bow. I am called to bow, and you are called to bow to the absolute authority, the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ in his church and in your life. But as we move on, the third thing we see is Christ's omniscience. It's a wonderful thing that he addresses the church by saying, I know, verse 13, I know, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, I know. God knows all things. Christ, the God-man, knows all things. He knows his own excellence. He knows his own being. He knows his own worth. He knows his own authority, and he knows me, and he knows each one of you infallibly. He knows us. Nothing is concealed from him. Christ's omniscience means more than he knows all things. His knowledge is of a different order than our knowledge. Our knowledge is discursive. If we want to know something, we have to study a thing. We have to think about a thing. We have to reason about a thing. Christ does not depend on on events or investigation to know. He knows. He knows all things. And knowing that Christ knows all things with divine knowledge helps us as we live in the midst of this present evil age, helps to deliver us from secret sin and to deliver us from hypocrisy. Don't you see why? When the child puts his hand in the cookie jar, he knows. When there is something stirring within my heart that is contrary to his word or way, he knows. Sinclair Ferguson said, we do not need to pretend to be publicly what we are not privately if we have learned not to pretend privately. That's a rather profound statement. Thou God seest me should be written on our hearts. And what encouragement for the Christian church. He knows what you need before you ask him. And so in verse 13, I know where you dwell, I know your environment, I know the temptations you face, the, the pressures to succumb, I know the anti-Christian society in which you dwell, I know the values of the society in which you live. All of this is most encouraging to the Christians living at Pergamum and should be to us as well because Christ knows where we live. He knows And what he knows specifically, he says to this church, is that you live where Satan's throne is. Notice again verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now some think this was the temple of Zeus. But remember that Pergamum was the seat of Roman authority in the province of Asia and the emperor cult is rife and undoubtedly he means that's where Satan's throne is. Because you see, by now, there's a a new test of Rome's authority that is beginning to pressure the church, the test of making an offering to the emperor. By the way, you don't have to go all the way back to the first century AD in the Roman Empire to find examples of this. In relatively modern history in Korea, when Korea was under the domination of Japan, Korean Presbyterians 
were being pressured by the state to offer incense to the emperor of Japan. And those who did not, some were killed. Others were in prison for many, many, many years. This is very relevant in terms of modern history. You can read about this, by the way, in a little book called The Korean Pentecost, which I commend to you. If Christians in Pergamum were called upon to make this offering and refused, as the gospel calls upon Christians to do, there would be death upon them as enemies of the state. So no wonder, he says, I know where you live. It's where Satan's throne is. It pretty clearly represents the temple to Augustus. Another was made in Smyrna, another in Ephesus. So that as time went on, Asia, this province, Roman province of Asia, becomes the seat of emperor worship, and Satan ruled Pergamum. It looked as if Satan's throne was superior to Christ's, but at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20, in verse 10, we read, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever The point here, Satan ruled in Pergamum, but Jesus ruled Satan, and he still does. Things are not what they seem to us. When we listen to the news, when we hear about where the world is and what is happening in the world, we sometimes want to wring our hands, but we must remember Jesus Christ rules, that the devil is God's devil. And what he is saying to them with this great encouragement, I know where you live, is essentially, I rule over them all and I'm encouraging you. Now in the midst of all this, it's a wonderful thing that the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he commends the church in order to encourage them in their faithfulness. And so the fourth thing that we see as we move along is the commendation of Christ in the passage. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you... Hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So these Christians have actually tasted death for the cause of God and truth. Now this man Antipas, we really know nothing more than his name. He is a Christian martyr. Possibly he was a pastor of the church or a faithful Christian. A reasonable conjecture is, because of the emperor worship in Pergamum, That his martyrdom was the result of a refusal to worship the Roman emperor. But the interesting thing is, Jesus commends them because they did not yield. They were suffering for the name, and this is the first time in the letters that the form of persecution mentioned here would have been when Christians were being hauled before proconsular courts, Roman courts. And the choice, it was a very simple one. Either you do what the state says or you die. Either you worship the emperor or you die. And Antipas would not have been the only one who suffered in this way. Just continue to read the book of Revelation and read of the blood of the saints. So what about us? We do not yet face that kind of persecution in our culture, though many, many Christians around the world do. But in Revelation, we find the constant theme of standing firm for Christ against evil. Revelation 12, 11, And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and loved not their lives even unto death. Where do we need to be a faithful witness? Where do we need to lovingly and graciously take our stand? 
It's a simple question, but it's a profound question. Do we have, through the study of the Word of God, steel in our backbone? Are we filled with His Spirit? Are we daily believing and repenting so that we will take our stand for Christ in those areas of life where we are called to take a stand? And so he commends Antipas and the church because they have not given up on the faith in the midst of horrendous persecution. But then fifthly, we see the weakness of the church at Pergamum. He says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Now this against is not ultimate. It's an against of concern and care of discipline and love. It is the loving care of Jesus for his church. But the problem was in this passage, tolerance for the teaching of Balaam. Balaam, of whom we read this morning, as Pastor MacDonald read from the book of Numbers. Balaam, who led Israel to immoral relations with Moabite women and to Baal worship, to act treacherously against the Lord, as the text says. And they're called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, what Balaam was to the Old Testament, the Nicolaitans were to the New Testament church. And notice that it's already been mentioned back in the letter to Ephesus in verse 6 of chapter 2, What does Christ think of the Nicolaitans? Chapter 2, verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's very strong language coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he hates the works of the Nicolaitans. Now probably this included participation in heathen festivals. There are two important words that are used here. The first word that is used in the passage is the word scandalon, scandalon, which is that part of the trap where there's bait. Satan puts in the way of the church offenses and traps. He wants to entrap the church of Jesus Christ. And the second word that is used is idolaluthan, which in the New Testament is the word that is used of heathen sacrifices and things that are offered to idols. So the Christian is forbidden by God through Paul in 1 Corinthians to participate in meals with unbelievers who have offered the meat on the table to idols. And in 1 Corinthians 8, we see that some were going to pagan temples and participating in the eating of of these heathen meals. The meat was nothing. That wasn't the issue. The fact that they were sacrificed to idols was an issue. Heathen festivals were impure. And so Paul says by divine inspiration in 1 Corinthians, you have no, no, that has no place in your life. You have no right to participate in those things. But the church at Pergamum tolerated these things. That's what's happening. They were faithful on one front. In this great area, probably over a number of years to withstand emperor worship, but they allowed the world's influence in by another door. And I contemplated this. It seems almost contradictory, does it not? That they're so faithful in this one area, so unfaithful in this other. And yet I look at my own life and I see what areas in which I'm faithful, what areas do I need to believe and repent. And maybe some reasoned, well, we're fighting the world. Why fight professing Christians too? I mean, these people are in the church. We've got enough on our hands. Or maybe they said, surely in this thing we can be like the world. Maybe if we don't do this greater thing, we can do this lesser thing. They want to do all they can to hold on to the customs of the Greco-Roman world. I mean the offensive, evil things in which a Christian should not participate. 
even though it is leading to compromising Jesus Christ in their lives. And the question that I had to ask myself as I was preparing my mind and heart to come and proclaim this word to you today is, where is church discipline? Where is the discipline of the church that we read of so thoroughly, so frequently in the New Testament? That this church, faithful in one area, can allow this to be happening in their midst and there's no church discipline. And so they accommodated themselves to false teaching, and they accommodated themselves to immorality. And this was Satan's attack via Balaam. If a frontal attack won't work, the enemy will look to attack from within. And in this way, make the church like the world. And it is always Satan's goal to make the church like the world. It is always his goal to make your Christian life a worldly Christian life. He doesn't mind that you profess Christ. He doesn't want you to believe the truth and live for Christ. So that's Satan's goal here in this church at Pergamum. And we may not be faithful to Christ as Lord and sacrifice holiness of life. Life without submission to God's word is absurd. And so he says, you need to submit. I'm the one with the two-edged sword. Do you see my authority? You must submit. So there's a call to repentance that we find, and that's the sixth thing you see, a call to repentance in verse 16 of this chapter. He says in verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, it may be an old-fashioned word and one that we don't hear much, but it's surely a New Testament word, an Old Testament word, a biblical word, and something that we need in our lives. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, the very first thesis is a thesis that says, essentially, repentance is the ongoing responsibility of the Christian in his Christian life. It's not something that happens once way back there. It's something that is daily in the Christian's life. So where do I need to repent? Where do you need to cease play acting before God in the world? Do you see God's greatness, the emptiness of the world's glamour, how stern the loving Christ is, how determined he is to change us so that he comes to us with the hard things and says to us lovingly those things that we need to hear? And there's a warning in verse 16. Look at it. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Philip Hughes makes the observation, the Lord will smite these perverters of his word with the very word they have perverted. Imagine standing before the Lord, you have perverted my word and now with that very word I judge you. And perhaps it's a reference to Balaam in the passage that Pastor McDonald read to us this morning that concluded in Numbers 31, verse 8, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. (laughs) He said, I will fight against them. This will affect the entire church people. It will affect the entire congregation. God has a controversy against this group in the church And he will come and fight against them. 
And you and I need to realize that if we compromise with the world or continue in sin, the Lord may involve the whole congregation in what it takes to deal with us. May I repeat that? Don't you think that's important? Not that other things haven't been, but this is very important. If you compromise with the world or continue in sin, the Lord may involve the entire congregation in what it takes to deal with you. What does that mean? It may mean church discipline, the whole congregation involved. It may also mean the whole congregation suffers when Christ comes against this group or this person in order to cut out the cancer that is growing in a congregation. So I hope that one thing you see is Christ's intense love for and concern for his people, for his church. And that's why he doesn't mince words. But notice, seventhly, encouragements from the risen Lord. He brings encouragements. And we find those encouragements in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he promises to overcomers, overcomers, those who hear the word, those who follow the word, those who by God's grace persevere in the word. He promises hidden manna. Now that's not difficult to understand. That must mean sustenance. Manna sustained the church in the wilderness, and manna continues to sustain the people of God as we are a pilgrim people in the wilderness wandering to which we are called. What is that manna but God's word? Moses taught in Jesus that manna pointed beyond itself, that man shall not live by bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So how does Christ sustain us, his people? He sustains his people through his word. We must be people of the book. We must be radically into the word or we will be deceived. It comes up again and again. And John Stott made the wonderful statement, denying ourselves the luxury of idle meats in this life, the banquet will be the richer in the next. But also... The banquet can be rich here because refusing idle meats, we feast upon as God's people the word, the word written day by day by day by day. Now, I'm preaching to someone here this morning, and you just don't see that. And you don't see it because the word is meaningless to you, and the word has no place in your life. And the reason the word has no place in your life, or the preaching of the word when it comes to you is a dull thing rather than than vital to your existence, because you don't know the Lord. You don't know the author of the word, because you're not regenerate, because you're not converted, because you don't know Jesus. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ, he loves the word that he once despised or to which he thought he was indifferent but really was rebellious. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the word of God will have no place in your life. If you come to know Jesus Christ, you cannot get enough of the word. 
There's a longing in your heart for communion with God and fellowship with Him, and you will begin to love the Word of God. So really, it's a diagnostic test. Is the Word meaningless to me? Is the sermon meaningless to me? Is it something that really has no part in my life? I have no thrill, no excitement about these things. I find no sustenance. Then you need to ask yourself the question, why? But also he encourages the church in another way. Not only does he promise to sustain by manna, which ultimately is the word undoubtedly, he also promises a white stone. White is many, many times used in Revelation to point to heavenly themes. The background is very complex. That is to say, there are many options as to what this might mean. A white stone was used as a ballot, sometimes a ticket of admission. It means acceptance. A black stone often represented condemnation in voting. Now, I don't know what what this means with absolute certainty. We will know for sure one of these days because New Testament interpretation will find its ultimate in heaven. And I can hardly wait to get to that great library and begin to do my research. But probably it brought to mind the white stones of the ancient world in some general sense and instills new meaning into it. It's permanent. It's a stone. The color is important. It's white. But I think the most important thing for us to note is what's written upon the stone. The new name will be written upon the stone. A divinely given name. For sure, it is a reference to our identity being found in Christ, yet to be understood more clearly, more wonderfully, more beautifully, more gloriously in the future that awaits us. Which is a way of saying that, Christian, you are not lost in the crowd. When Jesus Christ came into this world, he came for you. When he shed his blood on the cross, he died for you. When he rose from the dead for your justification, it was for you. He intercedes for you. Your name is important to him. And so important to him that in the day to come, all of the faithful will be given a new name. And that new name will unpack for us more gloriously what that union with our Savior has always meant and will mean for us for eternity to come. For now, Isaiah 43, fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Yes, in Pergamum, where Satan's throne is. Yes, in the midst of emperor persecution. Yes, in the midst of false teaching and false doctrine and false living that's going on all around you and all of the temptations. I know all of these things and my name is upon you and you are mine. You are so much mine that the eternal decree of God that singled you out for salvation means you will always be mine, that the shed blood on the cross means you are purchased, you are my purchased possession, and you will always be mine, that the Spirit of God that indwells you is an earnest of your inheritance And it means that you always will be mine. I know your name. And I will give you a new name. Now what is the Spirit saying to the churches? Pastor McDonald has been teaching a class in the educational hour on how to listen to a sermon. 
Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is the Spirit saying? This is an evil age and it is passing away. Don't court its friendship. Don't be seduced by paganism. Be zealous for the truth. So let me give you some concluding, don't rush it, I'm not done, but some concluding points. These are things that I think we can take away. There's some overlap in what I'm going to say, but these are things I think we need to take away from our study of the Church of Pergamum. The first thing is this, realize that this vile world is not a friend to grace to help us on to God. We just sang those words. This vile world is not a friend to grace. And since it was then and is now a hallmark of paganism to justify sexual immorality, the scriptures are plain that especially in this area there can be no compromise of Christ and his gospel. And so if you are flirting with the world in this area, stop. Believe, trust, repent, turn, because it has no place in the Christian life. None whatsoever. And you can't read the New Testament, and especially the epistles, without seeing that there is a strong, strong, strong emphasis upon this in the first century church, in a pagan environment, in which we now find ourselves also. But then also, let me say, do not compromise biblical principles. Now, William Ramsey, as an historian and an archaeologist, put it this way. He said this, an easygoing Christianity could never have survived. It could not have conquered and trained the world. Only the most convinced, resolute, almost bigoted adherence to the most uncompromising interpretation of its own principles could have given the Christian the courage and self-reliance that were needed. For them to hesitate or to doubt was to be lost. That's a rather profound observation on the part of a historian But actually, we have even better. We have the strong words of Jesus Christ himself to the church at Pergamum. Do not compromise biblical principles. Or to put it all another way, beware of syncretism. Attempting to blend the Christian faith with worldly philosophy rather than thinking thinking in a way that is clear-headed about the false reality of this world and the reality as it is according to God's word. Someone has said it was easy to be a success in Pergamum. Would you like to know how to be a success in the world in which you live from a worldly point of view? It was easy to be a success in Pergamum if your mind became the home of a hospitality which made no critical distinctions and your life included practices which morally did not belong together. Syncretism seemed a very broad-minded thing but it would have meant the end of the Christian faith. The cosmopolitan all too easily becomes a jellyfish. The modern follower of Balaam has an air of fine urbanity, but he betrays the integrity of his own soul and the integrity of his religion. And that comes from a liberal United Methodist publication. Hey, if they can see it, we can see it by the grace of God. Be alert to potential compromise. So the church is tempted on the front of morality and the state. Just burn a little incense. Guy, you're so, you're so uptight. Just go and 
just take a little sprinkle of incense and burn it to the emperor and you're off scot-free. And then you're there for your family and you can provide for them and you're there for the church and you can win people to Jesus because you're still alive. But as has been observed, the church understood that this would enthrone Christ and the emperor side by side, which really means enthroning the emperor above Christ in the heart. And everything that was vital to Christianity would have been completely lost. Now, in our country today, there is an ever-growing view that Christianity is fine so long as it is practiced right here on Sunday. They don't care. Come to church, do your thing, practice your religion, but don't bring it into the public square. So where will this lead? There are more ways for the state to demand worship than burning incense before the emperor's statue, and I think that your elders and the session and our denomination were going to have to be alert to things as they move along, alert to areas of potential compromise. But one thing is for sure, It is never right, as Martin Luther says, it is never right, never right to compromise your conscience. Never. And we should have biblically informed consciences. Now, those things that belong to Caesar, give them to Caesar. They want to tax you, you give taxes even if they're unjust taxes. Jesus taught us that. Render unto Caesar the things that belong to him. But there are things that the state is demanding in various parts of the world and that, who knows, may even be demanded here. And these are things upon which we cannot compromise. And the main thing, the most important thing, the essential thing, the absolute essential is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 5, turn there, in verse 29, Acts chapter 5, verse 29 Peter responds to persecution, an attempt by the state to stop the preaching of the gospel in this way in Acts 5.29 and following. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you kill by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so they are beaten, they are eventually set free, and in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There are two ministers imprisoned in Sudan this morning for the crime of preaching Jesus Christ and who are obeying God rather than men. May the Lord sustain them. Let me say this, be committed to the principle that there is no common ground between the Christian faith and unbelief. That's what they were attempting to do. Let's just find some common ground with the pagan world. And it may be very sophisticated, and the argument can sometimes be very, very tempting. You know, let's, let's be relevant. People just don't think the church is relevant. So let's, let's just 
find some common ground here. Do we want people to think that Christianity is not enjoyable? And can't we win our neighbors by participating with them in some sordid things in their lifestyle? And after all, the body's not important, is it? Just the heart and the soul. That's the important thing. And so we're free to use our bodies in these dissipating ways. But hey, the soul is saved and the spirit. And in these ways, throughout history, many who have professed faith in Christ have begun to compromise. Do not dabble with idolatry and do not dabble with immorality. The church in New Testament times dealt particularly with these two issues, appropriate sexual conduct and food sacrifice to idols and other forms of idolatry. Dennis Johnson said, dabbling with idolatry or immorality denies that we belong to Jesus, our jealous husband who tolerates no rivals. Now, that's the kind of heart I want. Do you? Dabbling with idolatry or immorality denies that we belong to Jesus. I just don't want anything in my life. I don't want anything in the lives of the people I pastor that dabbles with idolatry or immorality. And Jesus Christ loves the church so much that that's the fundamental point he's making in this passage. Which means that you and I also must have open hearts and we must, we must be willing to do what Jesus calls upon the church to do, which is to repent. And let me give you good pastoral counsel Rather than sloughing off the truth, growing cold, sliding back, and little by little by little by little getting in so deep that when the call to repent comes, it's virtually impossible to do. Nothing is impossible with God, but you get my point. Why not this? Why not every day get on your knees... And say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Search my heart. If there's a wicked way within my heart, will you show it to me and help me to keep short accounts and to repent right now? Isn't that the better approach? Repent daily. And perhaps the best commentary in the New Testament on this passage to drive this entirely home to us is 2 Corinthians 6. If you'll turn there. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. And here he talks about separation from the world. He does not mean that you should not be involved in the world. He means the mindset, the heart position with which you are involved in the world should be separate from this world from the worldview that compromises the truth. So he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You see, there's an absolute antithesis. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, promises, gospel promises, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's his call for his people. Another passage comes to mind, the book of Romans, chapter 12, where Paul the Apostle says, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or it could be translated, reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or as one of the translations puts it, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. But the mold into which you want to willingly be squeezed, if I may put it that way, is the mold of the teaching of the word of God. I feel within my heart, oh, I wish I could get this through. I really wish I could get this through. But I know only the Holy Spirit can, and I trust him to use his word. Someone here today doesn't know the Lord Jesus. In a room this size with this many people, somebody here doesn't know Christ, I'm pretty sure. And if you're lost, if your heart is guilty and you are stained with sin, you need a Redeemer. You may be full tilt into this world, but this world is passing away. Jesus Christ is going to return. You need a Savior. You need an alien righteousness because you have none of your own. Christ only can give that. You need a new heart upon which is written God's law, that law that now you despise. Only He can give you a new heart. Christ alone can save. And no other. And that's the privilege of the church. To preach Christ, his gospel, and to live in such a way that the world sees Christ in us. Will you do it? By the grace of God, with his help, with the Spirit's work, will you do it? God's people said, amen. Amen.